0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, one of the hosts for this channel. Uh, Today we'll be talking to Dr. Sandra Green about her book, Slave Owners in West Africa, Decision-Making in the Age of Abolition, published in 2017 by Indiana University Press. Dr. Green is a Stephen, 1959, and Madeline, 1960, Avender Professor of African History in the History Department at Cornell University. Dr. Green's research has included the study of gender and ethnic relations in West Africa and the role that religious beliefs, warfare, and the experience of slavery have played in the lives of individuals and communities in 18th and 19th century Ghana. Dr. Green, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you could uh, begin by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, I uh, was born and raised in a small town in southwest Ohio, uh, Zinia, Ohio, which was also uh, the town Uh, where you had two HBCUs, uh, Central State University and Wilberforce University. And that in itself had an influence on um, uh, my interest in Africa. My mother uh, completed her uh, B.A. at Central State, and because she was there uh, and uh, had met quite a few African students her worldview expanded a lot, um, and uh, she exposed us also to um, the wider world. I think she was one of the few people in uh, the east end of Xenia, which is where the vast majority of the black people live. In fact, all of us live there. Um This was in an era of kind of uh, de facto segregation. Uh, She was one of the few people in our area who actually subscribed to the New York Times. And so she was very interested in politics and especially international affairs. And I think that influenced me as well. So when I uh, was looking at colleges to attend, I wanted to, like so many other young kids, wanted to kind of get away from home. I was especially attracted to Kalamazoo College because of its African Studies program. It's one of the oldest in the country. And they had uh, opportunities for students not only to study African history, African politics, African literature, but actually to study abroad. And so um, I enrolled at Kalamazoo uh, was actually a philosophy major, but I went to the University of Ghana in my senior year, spent the entire senior year there, and because of my experience there, I decided to apply to Northwestern University and a lot of other places, but Northwestern uh, gave me a full ride, um, and so I went to Northwestern to continue studying African history there. So that's how I got involved. Uh, Of course, uh, the period that we're talking about is in the mid to uh, late 60s when I was in high school and in college in the early 70s. And this still was a very exciting period. It was the Black Power Movement. It was the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, There was a lot of Black is Beautiful movement, a lot of Black is Beautiful activities, a lot of interest in Africa at the time. Uh, African countries were not only uh, becoming independent, but introducing all kinds of um, uh, new strategies for governing. Uh, you had Ujamaa in Tanzania, for example. Nkrumah uh, was, um, you know, was still a well-known figure around Pan-Africanism, uh, et cetera. So it was a very exciting time. Uh, Even though things were beginning to, um, African countries beginning to have difficulties uh, during this period, but still there was a lot of excitement in the U.S. about Africa. Uh, And so that also propelled me to uh, take a look. I found uh, that I knew very little when I went to college and was taking my African history courses and uh, just uh, felt like I was learning something new every day and I just thrived on that. So that's how I am interested.
0: Very good. Um, And so we're talking about a, a very sort of long trajectory, uh, and, and I've I've sort of mentioned a little bit, like all the different topics that you have uh, written about and, and researched, how did you um, come uh, to write this particular work, Slave Owners uh, of West Africa?
1: Uh, I started my field work in the area where I have focused much of my research in 1977-78, and um, I did a lot of oral interviewing and uh, did not focus on slavery at that time. Um, I was looking at uh, more social history, uh, the impact of uh, immigrant uh, immigration into this area and its impact on gender and ethnic relations. Um, and then I subsequently did another book on sacred sites, all of which came out of my oral interviewing. But as I was after I finished those two books, I was really looking for another topic and I explored a variety of things. But in the end, I uh, decided to focus on slavery in large part because um, the material was there both the uh, documentary sources and the oral materials. I had collected a little bit, but I ended up going back to um, the area, the Angla area, and doing more interviewing, focusing specifically on slavery. And that established the foundation for uh, the next book, which was West African Narratives of Slavery, And this book as well, Slave Owners of West Africa. So in many respects, I have been collecting material for since 1970s. And some of that material uh, ended up in this book. And so it's been a long journey, you might say, uh, of collecting materials and then um, looking at them and determining, okay, how much do I have enough material to focus on this? Or to focus on that, and in this case, I had enough material to uh, write the slave owners of West Africa.
0: Um, one of the things that uh, it, it is very clear, actually, from from looking at these uh, three biographies, that you know that the work is a, is a very long, that's been a long process to to put together these biographies. And one of the things I was wondering as I was reading was whether. Um, Uh, whether you have, uh, for instance, other individuals that you could have been included. And uh, at at one point during the introduction, for instance, you mentioned how you took this uh, decision of, of uh, only uh, using materials for whom uh, of individuals for whom you had who have given you explicit approval um, uh, to to talk about them. So um, I guess I have a couple of questions here. One is like whether there was a lot of materials that you couldn't use um, because you didn't get the approval. And, and in other words, uh, do you have a lot of other biographies that could have been included and that for one reason? Reason and another could not be included, Um, or uh, or were these just, or you chose these three ones um, specifically because they were more representative or just more complete?
1: Uh, I really chose uh, the three individuals I focused on because they were the ones I had the most material for. Uh, I had been in communication with, I had interviewed the descendants I continue to be in communication with some uh, family, you know, families as we exchanged information. What did they have on the family? They sent me and I sent material that I had to them on, on their family. You know, So there had been quite a bit of exchange. I have some materials on other individuals. Uh, I was really sorry that I didn't have enough material on uh, a woman slave owner, for example, but I simply did not have enough. So in many respects, the material that, uh, the reason why I selected these three individuals, because they are the ones that I have the most material
0: on. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I could see that. I mean, it's a difficult topic to, to research. And, and and I was wondering also on, on that, um, uh, along the, those lines, if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about um, the decision to focus on slave owners. I mean, you do uh, talk a little bit in, in the introduction about um, how it's been an overlooked topic. Um, and so I was wondering if you could um, sort of expand from that or just uh, tell us a little bit more about. How how you know how basically this is a, a very new uh, approach uh, in, in, into the topic of slavery.
1: Um, the focus on the slave owners really came as an outgrowth of my previous book on West African narratives of slavery. That really focused on that, individuals who were enslaved, and they were also kind of biographical in orientation, and uh, and their descendants. Um, of the enslaved, that is. And so I said, okay, if we want to look at the institution of slavery, we've got uh, these perspectives, these life histories, these short biographies, diaries by individuals who were enslaved, etc. But we don't see, it would be interesting to see the other side, what slave owners were thinking. So really, in in many respects, I see the two working together, uh, just flipping the coin and looking at different sides of the same Uh, but the same institution, the enslaved and then the slave owners. So that's why uh, I focused on uh, slave owners in this particular book.
0: (laughs) No, 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 that's good. Um, I mean, it it was also really interesting just to see... um, both in, in how you discuss your uh, your decision about uh, what information to include, the process of trying to gain approval from the descendants uh, of these individuals uh, but also just in terms of uh, like the, the current relevance uh, that uh, that the topic of slavery has and and, and I think that's something that um, is probably not always, evident um, to a lot of people who look at the issue of slavery in Africa.
1: Yes, it's an extremely sensitive topic. Uh, It continues to be a a very sensitive topic to this day. In fact, just a couple of days ago, I was reading a, I believe it was a BBC article on um, uh, a set of, an effort to establish a museum with UNESCO funds and other funds in Benin. And uh, it talked about the sensitivity associated with uh, slave owners that uh, now that uh, there is an effort to, um, you know, uh, focus on heritage tourism, et cetera, the families themselves of the slave owners, their descendants really don't want to be singled out and highlighted. They're very, very sensitive about uh, being, associated with an ancestor who was involved in this kind of business. Um, And the sensitivity continues to this day. Um, And in in large part, it's because obviously slavery is not an institution that is assumed to just be uh, part of the regular economy. It is illegal worldwide. Uh, It continues to exist and it continues to be vilified as a practice. And so that level of sensitivity means that even descendants of slave owners don't want to, in a sense, be um, outed, you might say, as uh, having an ancestor who was involved in this business because it's so negative
0: yeah no that, that 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 becomes one of the most interesting um, I think elements in the book uh, especially how you structure each of the chapters uh, first in their biography and then you have that last section about the, the legacy or, or, or uh, what legacy could have come of that particular um, of the, the, the decisions that that particular individual made in terms of, of how to approach the abolition uh, so uh, maybe now we can talk about specifically about each of one of them so in your first chapter you talk about and please uh, correct me if I mispronounce any of these names which I probably will Amigashi Afeku of Kera and um, so can you tell us a little bit about him um, what uh, you know what was his what was his particular approach uh, to the to slavery and later on to abolition?
1: Uh, Amagashi Aho uh, was a, quite a prominent businessman, slave owner. He was also associated with, with one of the most important religious orders that operated in the area, um, and so he was quite wealthy and influential. He. Uh, was also a a very close advisor to the paramount chief in the Anglo area. So he was a very prominent individual. He uh, adamantly opposed uh, the abolition of slavery. Uh, He did several things. He moved his, when the British extended their authority over uh, the Anglo area, he moved uh, just out of their reach so he could keep uh, his slaves. Uh, There was an incident in which a number of people who had been enslaved during a war uh, decided that with abolition they wanted to go home because they knew exactly where they came from. So they um, uh, gathered together and were uh, going home um, carrying uh, the goods of a missionary who was also uh, going into the interior um, as a way to uh, make a little money. Uh, on their way home and amagashi sent a group uh, of uh, Individuals to stop them now these weren't even his own slaves uh, uh, Or his former slaves instead uh, They belonged to other people, but he was opposed to the abolition of slavery and he was opposed to the idea of any slave trying to return home uh, another incident uh, involves his selling of slaves and he was prosecuted at least twice by the British for slave dealing uh, And he simply refused to show up in court, you know, so he was pretty adamant about um, uh, Maintaining the institution of slavery and what I do in the book is to uh, offer some rationale or reasons why he in particular took this a particular approach now he was not unique in uh really opposing abolition, there are many other individuals that I give as examples just to show that he was not unique but for Amagashi in particular, I suggest that one of the reasons he was so opposed was because he himself had been uh, was of slave descent, and during that particular period, we know that uh individuals of slave descent were constantly. Uh, reminded of their low social status, they were teased, uh, they were abused, et cetera, and yet he somehow managed to use his connections to uh, gain quite a bit of of, of uh, political, economic, and um, uh, social status within the community, despite the fact that he was of slave descent. And so I suggest that, in fact, one of the reasons he may have been so adamantly opposed to slavery is because he had spent his entire life uh, working the system to his own benefit. And so the last thing he would want to see is for the system to suddenly just be thrown over, you know, and slavery to be abolished. So that was a very interesting example of someone who really opposed uh, slavery. And in this case, I speculated for him, in particular, why he was so opposed to the abolition.
0: Yeah, I mean that, that was it, it, it was a bit uh, um, of a surprise. I have to admit when I was reading his case, and and then to um, to find out that he himself had been enslaved, and and like you said, that that had been such a that seems to have been such a central um, uh, reason why he might have uh, adopted this position. Um, and it, it, like you like you mentioned in your book, uh, at the point when you examine uh, the legacy that this uh, that a decision like this might have had, I mean how it does speak to uh, the continuation of that stigma uh, of of uh, of having been a slave among um, some of West African communities. Um, so it's 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 a very yeah it's a very poignant example of how and why that, that stigma might still exist.
1: Because his descendants, I mean, all of these things happen within the family, and at least one or one of his descendants, who was who was uh, you know a fairly well off individual, was still making dist- distinctions between himself and the people who uh, technically his ancestor had enslaved, even though uh, they were all considered to be uh, one large extended family now.
0: So, uh let's, let's let's talk about your second um your second biography, the Esniahu uh, Tamakloe of Anlo. Um he takes a, a different approach uh, uh to abolition and uh, he comes from a different trajectory. Can you tell us a little bit about him?
1: Yeah, Tamakloe was a uh a very uh well-respected uh individual um military leader. Uh, That's how he gained his reputation, although he came also from a very respectable family, a free family. Uh, But with abolition, he did not technically oppose abolition. He didn't embrace it either. He didn't free his slaves. Uh, But with abolition and uh, the obvious situation in which he, as a political leader in his community, found himself that they were unable to militarily resist colonial rule, he took a very different kind of approach. He decided that uh, he was going to use the new British colonial system to his advantage. Uh, He became a very uh, astute businessman with investments, uh, not only in the area, but many, many miles away in timber and mining, et cetera. Um, uh, uh, An astute politician in terms of uh, using uh, his position with regard to the British to benefit himself. Um, uh, And with regard to slavery, as a businessman, what he needed uh, most of all was individuals who could Uh, work his farms and support his political views when there were debates in the community um, uh, when there were decisions to be made uh, having large groups of people who would be you know supportive of his particular perspective individuals who could uh, serve as accountants as lawyers and so he didn't really free any of slaves and he was a very large slave owner instead he um, uh, gave them every reason to want to continue to be associated with him. Uh, he was a l- large landowner. He gave land to the Catholic Church. And then uh, upon giving the Catholic Church, this land stipulated that um, all of his children should uh, receive free education. Uh, the Catholics were um, setting up not only churches but also schools, and they were allowing English to be taught earlier than some of the other schools that had been established by other missionary societies. And English was the language of business at the time. We're talking about the mid to late 19th century, largely the late 19th century. And so a lot of the, uh, the children of his slaves uh, changed their name to Tomoklo and uh, went to school. He sent a couple of individuals uh, of slave descent to uh england and uh paid for their training to be lawyers uh and so all of these individuals in a sense um became a uh, part of his larger family wanting to stay affiliated with him because of the opportunities he gave them he had uh, villages uh, where he had settled slaves on the outskirts of the larger community he uh, had the leaders of those slave villages recognized as such, and, and that allowed them to be part of the Council of Chiefs, uh, which was highly unusual that someone of slave descent be given that opportunity to be the Council of Chiefs, but of course he needed them and and they supported him when he was uh, pushing his own ideas about how Angola should modernize and and take advantage of uh, what opportunities might uh, come with British colonial rule. So he was quite an astute politician, uh, quite an amazing individual, quite remarkable.
0: Yeah, very smart. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, you know, one could even call him progressive in in some regards. And it, it is interesting how you know, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is that in looking at the different decisions of these individuals, uh, like you said, they 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 also leave um, like different ways to deal with uh, uh, the, the descendants of slaves. So, uh, among the communities that that he was able to influence, you you see a minimized stigma for slavery. Um, and I, and I think what what that starts to uh, sort of give the reader is like this sense that th- there's like a real uh, there's not just one single way in which uh, the descendants of slaves are, are treated or remembered, uh, but that this, there's like a little patchwork in which that uh, how this uh, how this legacy has um, has been passed on uh, to the present day.
1: Now that's absolutely the case. Yeah. There's no, there was no single way, you know, and uh, different families, different communities took different approaches, you know, yeah, on how to handle abolition and the, how they were going to continue on uh, managing uh, a population that uh, had different, whose ancestors had different social statuses, you know, and in this case, he was an example that uh, slave status should not be a stigma. It really has to do with individuals' ability to contribute to the larger society.
0: Well, let's go to your last um, example, uh, Noah Yawol of Hokuk Noe, and um, tell us a little bit about him.
1: Noah Yawo certainly was not as wealthy as Tamaklo or Amagashi, but uh, for his community, he was fairly well off. He was uh, lending money. He was engaged in business, uh, buying and selling, uh, et cetera. And what is particularly interesting about him is that um, his religious beliefs uh, were significantly challenged. He was a polytheist, believed in multiplicity of gods, uh, but having experienced a war um, where there was it was devastating impact on his community and on him, um, famine, a smallpox out epidemic, and a whole series of of um of tragedies uh, uh, it's It's amazing of year after year, something is always coming up that is really, really difficult for him and for the larger community for that matter. Uh, the, the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of his continued faith in his own you know religious traditions came when his brother became very ill, and he went from one uh, healer to another who was using traditional beliefs uh, to try to heal. And it didn't work. And at that point, he decided to convert to Christianity. And the missionaries he was working with, largely uh, African uh, missionaries who had been trained by a German missionary society, uh, were urging him to free his slaves. He did eventually, but again, this shows you that, of course, people have to have some way of... of um, uh, maintaining themselves. And so uh, he, uh, before free, he said he would free his slaves, but it took him several years to do so because he needed to get his uh, financial house in order. He tried to recover some of the loans that he had lent, um, and he became increasingly attached to the uh, missionary society, which saw that he was sometimes in. Uh, difficult economic straits, and they would raise funds for him, etc. He eventually got back on his feet economically, financially, and at that point, he freed his slaves. Some of whom were debt debt uh, slaves, people who had were attached to him because uh, they owed a debt, or the families owed a debt, or uh, individuals whom he had bought. You know. So again, this is yet another example where uh it wasn't uh just a different approach it wasn't adamant uh, opposition to abolition it wasn't not freeing your slaves but doing everything else that um you know would want to keep the slaves attached to you as a former slave owner rather he fully embraced his uh this new religion uh, as fully as he had actually embraced his former religion, and that religion dictated that he, uh, in this case Christianity, that he freed his slaves, which he eventually did.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I think what is interesting about uh, this last case, but, but I mean it kind of goes back to the other two to some extent, is how you start to um, sort of how you see these individuals uh, sort of really making very strategic decisions not just in terms of what they see as is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do but uh you know how can i do the right thing but still survive like you said you know keep, keep uh, manage my finances manage my, my 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 own sort of economic transition throughout this this period and, 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 and again, it just complicates, uh, it makes us realize how complicated these decisions were, which is not a moral decision, but it was also like a legal uh, position in, in addition to an economic decision. So it
1: was really fun putting
0: it together. Oh, I imagine. I I imagine that it was. And I I was wondering if you could tell us a a little bit more about that. Uh, I I know it took you many years to to put this research, but I I think sometimes it is um, uh, in terms of uh, just how to put a biography. I mean, there's obviously recently there's been uh, more and more biographies of, of Africans in African history. Uh, many years ago, I remember uh, writing uh, a paper about the value of biographies in African history, just just in, in terms of how they help us um, sort of challenge uh, notions of uh, historical time. You know, how there's like a different chronology when you're writing biography, um, um, how they help us... Uh, Kind of make more complicated statements about agency. You know how agency it sort of looks different when you're looking at it from the in, from the point of view of an individual. Um, so how do you see those those uh, uh, those concepts change as you were writing um, these these biographies?
1: I think that um, uh, concepts of agency and time uh, were kind of woven into those. But one of the things that I really wanted to do was to. Uh, focus on uh, emotions um, as a way of not just saying uh, recounting the times in which these people lived and the you know the factual uh, character of the decisions that they made, but to get underneath um, uh, their actions to try to really understand them as individuals as members of a particular community uh, as social beings uh, who have uh feelings and concerns uh and i think that is critical for really um uh, getting a feel for an individual and uh connecting those individuals to uh the reader uh in many instances um uh biographies are of often famous people uh, biographies are one of the largest sections in in bookstores for example and they're almost always famous people but these are these are not well known people outside of their own communities and uh and yet they I wanted to connect with their humanity uh, very few people know anything about africa or africans it's very easy to get Uh, abstract images and I really wanted to get uh, go beneath the surface and really hopefully connect the reader to these individuals so that uh, you're not thinking about good or bad Um, you know this individual was terrible or this uh, you know or did wonderful things no it was complicated you know because life is complicated and individuals are complicated and hopefully it will Allow readers to see Africans as as complicated human beings as everybody else, when very rarely they have an opportunity to, to see that. Uh,
0: yeah, no, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking as I was reading it was um, how useful it, it will be for class, you know, for students, uh, because it is it is indeed sometimes very difficult to get students to sort of capture um uh, the complexity and and, and 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 in and in a way in which it does not exoticize this these individuals and i think i think this these biographies um achieve that um quite successfully um so um i was wondering now whether uh you could tell us uh where what are you working on now? what are what is your current what are your current projects
1: um i have uh written uh, four books on the history of the Anglo-Eve in Ghana, and I've done, uh, uh, you know, two of those are directly on, actually three of them are directly on slavery, and then I have four edited volumes uh, that deal with the topic of slavery in Africa. So after all this work, my sense is that I need to time to do something different <laughs> time to move on exactly what that different thing is I don't know uh, at the very moment what I'm doing is um, collecting a lot of the material that I have I'm cataloging it all of the oral histories that I've recorded uh, well over a hundred um, and a lot of the uh, documentary sources that are in very obscure journals, especially the missionary journals, which I have relied on for all of my work because they, you know, they, you can read them against the grain and get a lot of information about culture, individuals, etc., from these materials as long as you filter uh, the biases out. Uh, and those are the uh, the journals of the North German Missionary Society, Norddeutsche Missionsgesellschaft. And so I'm cataloging those in order to bequeath them to Northwestern. Uh, once I uh, and they will be available to scholars. Um, uh, a lot of the material that I used in this book and the other uh, book uh, on slave narratives. Uh, were produced, uh, a lot of the material, not all of it, uh, but a lot of the material came out of these German missionary records. The Germans are the ones who uh, were on the ground. Um, oftentimes they were trained in ethnography. Oftentimes they talked about the individuals that uh, they encountered in the late 19th century, uh, some of whom were definitely... Uh, some of those observations I was able to use in this book to flesh out these individuals. And so I am now working on just getting that material available, um, uh, again, to bequeath to Northwestern University's Africana Library so that uh, other people can have access to it. My, my next research project, uh, I'm still uh, exploring topics.
0: Good. Well, that's, a, that's usually the best place to be, you know, where everything is open right ahead of you. <laughs> um, I, I, one last question. I was um, wondering whether if you had any, uh, any ideas or any sense um, whether the book has been, uh, uh, has been made available in, in, in Ghana and whether you know if people have read it and what, what, uh, how it has been received in the communities uh, that these individuals, where uh, these individuals lived?
1: Uh, I don't know. Uh, I haven't been to Ghana uh, for a while now. Uh, as I said, I've been communicating, I've been in communication with uh, some of the families, uh, uh, but I don't know how uh, well, how it's being received. I know that it's a very sensitive topic, that uh, just from my, Uh, experience here that a lot of people uh, probably uh, are concerned that that it's even been published or that it's even available because it uh, has the potential to open up uncomfortable conversations you know but that goes along with the larger sensitivity around any topic associated with slavery within Africa it's fine in most Afri- West African communities to talk about the slave trade because you can always, you know, people left, et cetera. But when you start getting about getting down to what about those people who weren't put on the boats, where are they, where are their descendants now? How are they treated? It opens up an area that uh, is very sensitive. Uh, so uh I'm as curious as you are as to how the response would be, but I suspect it would be mixed simply because it's a sensitive topic, and so different people will have different takes on it you know uh the one uh a family Amag- uh, amagashi Afaku's family I was very um uh uh gratified that they were willing to allow me to publish the biography uh, of their ancestor i sent them uh the final draft of that particular chapter and i said um, i know this is sensitive uh and um i don't you know uh i don't necessarily know what the Consequences will be for you and your family, so I leave it up to you as to whether uh, I should publish this or not. I gave them the power to say no. This is not something you want published. Uh, fortunately for me, they agreed. Um, you know, they were not. Uh, they they indicated that they didn't feel I was trying to use this information for any purposes except for historical research. You know, and uh, so they were very generous in that regard. And that's why in many ways the the book uh, was published because they allowed me to do this. And so you can see, on the other hand, I know of other families who, and I've used pseudonyms for them, they would not have been very comfortable with it, you know. So I made sure that it was not possible to identify them, you know, certain individuals. Yeah. So I would expect it would have mixed reaction because uh, of the sensitivity of the subject.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's it's just been published, too, so I imagine it, it will take a little while uh, for all of that to to filter out, um, both and on the ground and then to us. Um, but it's it's uh, it was a very it was a very illuminating and enjoyable read, and thank you so much. And, oh thank you uh, for writing it and um, well I think that's we have taken plenty of time from you now um, thank you so much for talking to us uh, about this book and uh, for being on the podcast yeah it's my pleasure thank you thank you so goodbye bye bye